The Trumpet Daily Program begins right now. Today's world news, what it means, where it's taking us. I bring you the one and only possible message of world peace. This is a message of hope, tremendous hope. And he said unto me, you must prophesy again. The Trumpet Daily Program begins right now. Since the last time I was here, <laughs> since the last time I was here, Mr. Walker has been talking about issues that are of great importance to the people of Georgia. Like whether it's better to be a vampire or a werewolf. Now, listen, this would be funny if he weren't running for Senate. We all know some folks in our lives who we don't wish them ill will. They say crazy stuff. We're all like, well, you know, Uncle Joe, you know what happened to him. You know, it's okay. It, it, they're part of the family. But you don't give them serious responsibilities. Barack Obama there uh, yucking it up in uh, in Georgia as he campaigns for Raphael Warnock. I thought it was funny, though, myself, just hearing him refer to this hypothetical as Uncle Joe, of all things. Uncle Joe is the crazy one. Isn't that amazing? Sometimes, again, the silent part comes out loud. You're listening to Stephen Flurry, and this is the Trumpet Daily. We certainly appreciate you joining our growing audience you can get to the live video stream of this show through our website thetrumpet.com just go to thetrumpet.com forward slash live and it takes you to the live stream page and we come live to you every day at 11 a.m every weekday at 11 a.m we should have a weekend show sam sam's working on that every every weekday morning at 11 a.m uh in the central time zone of the united states well, speaking of Barack Obama and, of course, the, the puppet Joe Biden, the illegitimate president, he, he, the crazy uncle, you look at him yesterday wandering around. Once again, I didn't bring the footage, but you've probably seen it. The awkward handshake with Emmanuel Macron that went on for something like 30 or 40 seconds. Wouldn't let go. Just, just some really strange and bizarre behavior. And, of course, there's Antiochus out making the rounds, saying that the other side's crazy, so this is the world that we're living in. There's, uh, there's reports that I think Warnock uh, pulled in twice as much money between midterms and the runoff, which is, uh, what, next Tuesday? And as I said on yesterday's show, it looks like he's already way ahead in uh, the ballot harvesting count, uh, all of the early voting. And so we'll see. We'll see what happens. It's a pretty big seat or a pretty big race, I should say, uh, making it either 50-50 or 51-49 in favor of the radical uh, Democrats. Uh, speaking of the early voting, here, listen here to the lieutenant governor. This is a Republican. This is the lieutenant governor of Georgia weighing in on this uh, highly contested race, clip two. You told CNN in the fall that Walker didn't do enough to get your respect or your vote in November. Will you be voting for him next Tuesday? I showed up to vote this morning. I was one of those folks who got in line and spent about an hour waiting. And, uh, you know, it was the most disappointing ballot I've ever stared at in my entire life uh, since I started voting. You know, I had two candidates that I just couldn't couldn't find anything that, that made sense for me to put my, my vote behind. And so I walked out of that 
that ballot box uh, showing up to vote but not voting for either one of them. Herschel Walker is going to go down as probably the worst Republican candidate in the history of uh, politics, right? It's just no, no way to, to run away from that. First of all, just on the matter of voting, he, these are the only two uh, on the ballot. They've, they've been the only two on the ballot for the last three weeks. So here's a lieutenant governor who leaves his home, presumably, gets into his car, drives to the polling booth, spends an hour in line. He stares at the ballot, and then he can't vote. Or he says it's the worst ballot he's ever seen, as if he's surprised to see who's on the ballot. I mean, this is, is this all about theater? Or was he truly dis- so distraught when he saw those names that he just couldn't pull the trigger? But, but leave that aside, how strange that is. It seems like... It seems like the moment you get into your car to go to the polling booth, you're going to know. He, either you're voting or you're not. If you're not going to vote, stay home. Save yourself an hour of standing in line. But with respect to the race and the significance of it and the fact that you have, speaking of guilty associations or guilt by association, Warnock with all the anti-Semites that he hangs around and then, of course, the radical hard left views that are now customary for the, the Democrat Party. And you can't leave aside this guy, even though he's a Republican, he can't leave aside the problems that I guess he sees with Herschel Walker. And so he's not going to vote and basically give Warnock that much more of an opportunity to win. I told Sam next week when Herschel Walker loses, if he loses, Next week, you can expect that same lieutenant governor probably to come out and say, it's Trump's fault. Trump, <laughs> Walker was too close to Trump, even though Walker has distanced himself from Donald Trump, because the narrative is, following the midterms, you know it well, Donald Trump is the reason. There was no red wave. Donald Trump is the problem. And here's a prominent Republican going on CNN, telling the world, Don't vote for Herschel Walker. Telling Republicans, don't even bother to show up. And these people, these same people want to blame Donald Trump for everything. One thing that you you have to give the radical Democrats credit for, they rally around their candidates. No matter what they've done, no matter how extreme they are, no matter how many problems they have, they just made Hakeem Jeffries the, uh, the leader of the Democrat, uh, the Democrat Party in the House. So he's succeeding, he's succeeding Nancy Pelosi. The old guard is out, and in comes the new extremist. I mean, this, and this guy is extreme. He's cut from the same cloth as, as AOC, Omar, Rashida Tlaib, all of them. An extremist, he posted this on Twitter, by the way, a couple years ago. The more we learn about the 2016 election, the more illegitimate it becomes. America deserves to know whether we have a fake president in the Oval Office. That's what he wrote in 2018. So he's an election denier. But that's okay. That's okay. The Democrats heartily support him, yeah. They are rallying around this man. They always do. And yet you've got these weak rhino Republicans the ones that lined up, by the way, to support that Respect for Marriage Act, because they just want to go after businesses that would dare, that would dare make a principled stand against homosexual marriage. And so what was it? Seven, eight senators line up, Republican senators, no less. And never mind, never mind what, uh, what the majority in their states believe and think. 
They just went right along. Just so desperate to join with the Democrats. Just so desperate to win favor from the Democrats. And they never can quite win it. But they keep trying. They keep trying by surrendering, by, uh, by being weak and timid, not standing up to this onslaught, this, this transformation of the United States of America. Just go along. Just go along. Isaiah 59, I'll just read this to you. Verse 4 says, And judgment is turned away backward, and justice stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. It says, yes, truth fails. Truth fails in these last days. That's from Isaiah 59, verses 14 and 15. You stand up for the truth, and they're going to come after you. The Justice Department will come after you. Just so much in the way of satanic attacks on the United States, really on all of Israel. But if you want to study this more, America Under Attack, we have it ready and waiting for you to receive your free copy, the 800 number, 1-866-930-3024. That's uh, the toll-free number if you live in the United States and uh, in Canada. Speaking of uh, unjust rulings, just to follow on from uh, yesterday, the seditious conspiracy uh, Stuart Rhodes, I think is his name, the guy that the DOJ, they finally got a, a big fish. Finally, they got someone on sedition after almost two years. And yet, like I said to you yesterday, of all those other five counts, I think uh, they were guilty on two, these two guys, but acquitted on the other three, and, which really makes no sense. If they're guilty of sedition, the others that they're acquitted of really have to do with, with the motive the motivation to commit sedition. So you would think they'd be guilty on all five. We talked yesterday about how I don't think anyone in America would want to go on trial in deep, dark blue Washington, D.C. But if you can't get a guilty verdict on all five of those counts in Washington, D.C., what does that tell you about the strength or lack of strength of the DOJ case? The DOJ knows it's flimsy. This is from the New York, New York Times. It says, moreover, while all five Oath Keepers were convicted of at least two felonies and can expect to serve significant time in prison, the trial marked the first time that any jury had acquitted anyone of any charge related to January 6th. And this happened, as I say, in D.C., <laughs> in D.C., where you're going to have a hard time finding a Republican to sit on a jury it says, Attorney General Merrick Garland seemed to capture the equivocal nature of the verdicts, highlighting the positive aspects of the outcome and skipping over the negative. This is the New York Times now. The jury found all the defendants guilty of serious felony offenses, said Garland. As the verdict of this case makes clear, the department will work tirelessly to hold accountable those responsible for crimes related to the attack on our democracy on January 6th, and, and you know everything about how that this is the biggest investigation in the history of the DOJ, all of this money, just pouring money into, and then the geo-tracking, the geo-fencing that's so precise and accurate, except when tracking mules to steal elections. But when tracking the January 6th protesters, I mean, within yards, maybe a yard or two, you know, you know where they were, you know where they were walking. 
You know if they went into the Capitol. You know if they snapped a selfie. It says, but quest a question remains as four more Oath Keepers are scheduled to face seditious conspiracy charges at a trial expected to start next week. Will a jury hold them accountable for sedition too, even though none of them were leaders of the group? Well, we'll see. We'll see. Listen to this. In between the two Oath Keepers trial is uh, another seditious conspiracy trial, that of five members of the far-right nationalist Proud Boys, which is set to begin on December 19th. As in Mr. Rhodes's trial, the Proud Boys case will focus on the organization's leaders, among them Enrique Tario, or Tario, the group's former chairman, and some of his top lieutenants from Florida, Washington State, and Pennsylvania. So now they'll go after the Proud Boys. And of course, Tario, Enrique, is a known FBI informant. You got the FBI guys, they're, they're in all of these groups embedded into them and we're with them for months for months as as supposedly these groups were were planning a seditious conspiracy without weapons but but a seditious conspiracy to take over the united states government and yet none of those fbi informants thought it was necessary to uh to call the fbi into action or the doj or whoever to prevent the attack. No, they wanted it to carry they wanted it to carry out so that they could do what they're doing now. Put any and all Trump supporters into jail to send a message. Don't you dare protest against the regime. Don't you dare stand against the regime. We'll put you in jail. Certainly particularly if you're an election denier like Hakeem Jeffries. This is from the New York Times. It says, prosecutors are likely to base their case against the Proud Boys on hundreds, if not thousands, of encrypted text messages that the government believes show how the group moved increasingly toward using violence. So here again, it's the text messages. It's using the language of the Revolutionary War, like we mentioned yesterday. That'll get you in jail. That'll get you in jail. That's hate speech. That's sedition says prosecutors at the Proud Boys trial intend to argue that Mr. Terrio and his four uh, co-defendants instigated other members of the group and ordinary rioters to attack the police. I think Terrio wasn't even in D.C. on the day of the protest, the January 6th protest, but they're going after him. Well, because text messages, of course. This is from Donald Trump, his message to the January 6th defendants earlier this week, clip three. People have been treated unconstitutionally, in my opinion, and very, very unfairly. And we're going to get to the bottom of it. And you know what I've said. I take it very seriously. I have never seen anything like it at all levels. It's the weaponization of the Department of Justice. And we can't let this happen in our country because our country is going not socialist. They've skipped over that. They skipped over socialism. Our country is going communist. This is what happens, and we can't let it happen. We have to stop it. So I want to thank everybody for working so hard. I know how hard you're working to get justice for people that are imprisoned right now and people that are being tormented. We can't let it happen. We're going to stop it, and we're going to win. He's the only one that sees it. Or if he's not the only one who sees it, he's the only one that uh, speaks out against it and fights against it coming in the spirit of Jeroboam, 
standing firm. Uh, you would think there'd be statements like that coming from politicians all over D.C. It's happening right in their backyard. These people being persecuted for, for petty crimes. Staying in jail, rotting away in jail for months in some cases, years. This uh, FOIA request, we've been talking a fair bit in, uh, in recent weeks about the origins of COVID and, and, and the cover-up of those origins, the U.S. government's involvement in producing or at least funding what was coming out from that Wuhan lab. Here, and here again, you just heard from Donald Trump there. Who was right about the origins early on? Who was the one talking about it early on? I mean, he would mention China as being responsible for it. And, you know, you look at China today, one reason they have such, such severe lockdowns is because President Xi, Jeremiah Jacques wrote about this last night in his trumpet brief, but Xi has prided himself on basically stamping out the virus. He says only 5,000 people in China have died, whereas a million, if we're going to go by our counts over here, a million Americans have died because of the virus. So he, he holds it up as a point of, of praise for himself. Uh, we've ha this authoritarian regime in China has been able to stamp it out with its zero COVID policy. Well, the people are upset about that now. I'd encourage you, by the way, to go read that, that trumpet brief. I thought it had a, a quote from it earlier in my notes, but I might have skipped, skipped over it. But uh, it's by Jeremiah Jacques. It went out. Here it is. It says, since cameras integrated with facial recognition software are ubiquitous in Chinese cities, and since the nation's criminal justice system is notoriously brutal, many protesters likely knew they were risking their lives by publicly attacking the government, but they went ahead with the protests anyway because they are broken. I mean, that's some kind of desperation to take to the streets against a regime that you know will break you if you show your face out in the street. There's many people right now in China disappearing. They're not going to be seen from again. It says they feel that life under the Communist Party's ruthless dictatorship is not worth living, so they risked it all. And many of those who are being arrested may never be seen again. It says further on, this is his conclusion, it's clear that China has reached a turning point and will continue to weaken. This is significant because the trumpet has been expecting a decline in the power of Xi and China relative to that of his fellow strongman in Russia. See, Putin is to take the lead in that union of the kings of the East so, as I say, an important trumpet brief that went out last night. It's at thetrumpet.com at the moment. But coming back to these emails that reveal how much U.S. officials knew before, before we were ever even hit by the pandemic. They knew what was going on in that Wuhan lab. This is from April 3rd, 2020. So this was right at the very beginning. One State Department employee he emails this Washington Post link to a coworker, you know, another federal worker. And uh, the Post article was titled, How Did COVID-19 Begin? Its initial origin story is shaky. So the world panics, freaks out into lockdown mode in mid-March 2020. And then a couple weeks later, early April 2020, you know, some in the press were trying to figure out, okay, where did this start? Where did it come from? 
and one federal employee sends this email to a colleague and says, hey, this, this is the headline at the Washington Post. And then the response from the colleague later in the day was this, looks like the media is starting to report on this more factually. I wonder who set them straight. If they get my cables, they'll also know it was essentially predicted in 2018. Now, if you've read America Under Attack, you, you know all about what Tony Fauci was saying in 2017, right at the start of Trump's, right at the start of Trump's presidency. Fauci was there saying, yeah, there's going to be a pandemic. There's going to be a pandemic in the next four years. And then this exchange, this internal exchange from government employees, one of them's like, yeah, they're going to figure it out soon enough. I mean, if they looked at my cables, they'd know that uh, we had predicted this in 2018. It's amazing when you think of it. All of these internal, all of these internal communications. You know, we were exposed to some of that during the lawsuit over Mystery of the Ages. Very, very revealing. It always is. When you see what the, 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 the top officials say publicly or write publicly, and then you're able to get into their private communications and it tells an entirely different story. What does that tell you? What does that tell you? about the leadership at the very top. Well, it, it shows that there's a sickness there, isn't there? Like Isaiah 1 says, and it goes from head to toe all the way through, sick through and through. You see it with the private communications that Fauci had with Francis Collins. I mentioned those uh, the other day, the, the email that Fauci sent to that, where he was expressing some shock that you know, we're supporting this and they're doing this in the lab. And, and Collins uh, basically said, yeah, or someone uh, close to them said, yeah, it's like the Wild West. So naturally, they tried to cover all of that up when it was being exposed. And, and really, the only one who was even trying to expose it back in 2020, Donald Trump didn't even know all, of the, all the details. He didn't know all these private communications were going on. Or he didn't know the, 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 the essence of the messages anyway. And yet he, he pointed to the lab. He pointed to China. And then you look at the cables uh, today. Let me just read to you what it says in America Under Attack. It says the next day, I think this is referring to that the early 2017 period. The next day, Dr. Fauci gave a speech at Georgetown University about pandemic preparedness. In it, he basically predicted the COVID-19 pandemic. And this is quoting Fauci in 2017. No matter what, history has told us definitively that outbreaks will happen because facing infectious diseases is a perpetual challenge, he said. And then it quotes him as saying, the thing we're extraordinarily confident about is that we're going to see this in the next few years. So he basically said this is going to happen in, in Donald Trump's presidency, boy, you connect the dots on all of this, and then you see how far they're willing to go, like I covered on yesterday's show, to cover up scandal, to cover up scandal. And knowing how much they hated Donald Trump, not even just Fauci and company, but the CCP as well. More is coming out. All these FOIA requests. I hope there's many more of them. But you go back to origins, you go back to root causes. If there's these cables going back and forth where you, I think the Washington Post is getting close, man, if they read my cables, 
They know we predicted this in 2018. What's happening? What's coming out from these labs? A, a global pandemic. Fauci himself said as much. It says here, Dr. Fauci was funding gain-of-function research in China while simultaneously warning the American people to brace for a pandemic. Let me just read that again. This is an America under attack. Here again, call now and request your free copy. It's 1-866-930-3024. But in the, the book, my father writes, Dr. Fauci was funding gain-of-function research in China while simultaneously warning the American people to brace for a pandemic. It says here, he never mentioned he was involved in the dangerous manipulation of bat coronaviruses to produce a potential pandemic pathogen, but he seemed to know that the world was heading into a serious infectious disease crisis. It says the fact that he said this day, this a day after Obama reauthorized bioweapons research makes it even more suspicious. This is all happening just days before President Trump was inaugurated as the 45th president of the United States. I'll leave it to you to connect all of the dots. This book will certainly help you do that. America Under Attack. You're listening to Stephen Flurry, and this is the Trumpet Daily. If you'd like to email feedback to the show, you can email the show td at thetrumpet.com. We'll be right back. The Trumpet Daily. What has happened to the United States of America? The wealthiest, most powerful nation in human history is suddenly divided, weakened, radical. The evil in America has grown powerful. The good has grown weak. The honorable parts of American history are succumbing to a direct, targeted, sustained assault. Someone, something is dismantling America's history, purpose, and character. Fundamentally transforming the United States of America. Political dysfunction, social strife, economic peril, catastrophic moral failure, fires, attacks, riots, lies. The nation is being attacked from within by its own leaders. Powerful elites in government, journalism, academia, and beyond are intentionally, rapidly destroying what America is in order to make it into something else. There is a reason why your nation is crumbling before your eyes. There is a spirit and a specific perpetrator that is attempting to blot out America. Only America Under Attack reveals that perpetrator and the motive and spirit behind him. This newly expanded book shows you the reason why America has changed so dramatically, so suddenly. If you're confused and concerned about what is happening to America, request your free copy of America Under Attack by Gerald Flurry at thetrumpet.com. The Trumpet Daily. The first century disciples of Christ, as you know, they spent three and a half years with the Messiah and Jesus taught them many things, including even very practical day-to-day -day matters, such as praying to the Father. There's the account in Luke 11 where the disciples, after seeing Jesus off in the distance praying, 
they went and asked him, they said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Show us how to pray. And of course, the, the chapter then, we'll get into some of it a little bit later, but it then gives this valuable instruction on what to talk about when you're praying to God. So they needed instruction. They needed teaching. They needed guidance, even when it came to their prayer time. There's a, another account in, this is Matthew 26, where uh, it's the night before Jesus was to be crucified. And uh, on this evening, I mean, Christ was agonizing. He was praying for hours. At one point, he asked the disciples to, to pray with him. But they were so worn out they, that basically their response was, well, do we have to? I mean, we're, we're weary. We're tired. In Luke, or rather Matthew 26 and verse 41, he concluded this exchange that he had back and forth with the disciples when he was asking them to pray with them. He, he uh, concluded by saying, watch and pray that you enter into, that you enter not into temptation. It says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He told the disciples, you know, it's, it's easy to want to pray, but when it comes right down to it, I mean, we've really got to push ourselves. We've really got to drive ourselves to the prayer closet or to our knees. A lot of people in this world like the idea of being close to God. They like the idea of having a close relationship with their maker, but they really don't work on that relationship. They don't talk to God. They don't let God talk to them through Bible study and meditation. It's just so easy. It's so easy to give in to the, the pulls of the flesh to not do what we know that we should. Notice uh, 2 Thessalonians 3. This is a, a section of Scripture where Paul uh, really does hammer away at uh, work ethic. There were busybodies in the Thessalonica region. They weren't working. They weren't out making a living or not like they should have been. And then they were causing problems, division in the congregation. They were busybodies. And Paul said, look, get, get up off the couch and go to work. Be productive. Be fruitful. Contribute. Verse 10 of 2 Thessalonians 3, it says, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. I mean, that's pretty plain speaking right there. There's a, quite a few people in, in Washington, D.C. that could benefit from this admonition. We just have these, these nanny states that are, that are just massively expanding year over year. Handouts galore. Handouts for everyone. You think if a, a politician got up and said, you know what, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. You think that's a winning message? <laughs> I don't think that's going to fly in today's climate. The message today is, look, you don't need to do anything. We'll just give you all that you need. That way you can sit around and be lazy. That's not God's way, obviously. Verse 11, it says, For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. The Phillips translation says, Never doing a stroke of work, but busy only in other people's affairs. <laughs> I think we've all uh, met people like this from time to time. Maybe we've been like this once in a while. Verse 12, it says, Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own 
bread. In uh, First Thessalonians, he talks about, again, being quiet and doing your, your own business and working. This was the, the admonition that Paul gave to the Thessalonians. This is uh, evidently it was a pretty big problem in that, uh, that area. They weren't contributing. They weren't pitching in. They weren't helping to bear one another's burdens. They were just kind of hanging out, waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. You can see that alluded to in uh, chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. But verse 13, just to finish off here, it says, But you, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Don't be weary in doing well. Keep doing. It's like I was saying in, in epistles class this morning. I mean, you could, have, you could have years of productive and fruitful growth just wiped out overnight. Kind of like the SBF company. You could just be wiped out overnight over one tragic mistake or, or just letting down. Look at what happened to the Laodiceans. An entire church era. Herbert Armstrong died in 1986. And I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't but three or four or five. Certainly, if you were paying attention, you could see massive, significant changes happening in 1986 and 1987. But even looking at it more on the surface, I mean, this was a church you could hardly recognize just five years after Mr. Armstrong died. Some would say that after eight years, I guess 86 to 94, they had completed the transformation. I mean, they, the Old Testament was done away. Basically, the law is out the window. You don't need to observe the Sabbath. You don't need to tithe. You don't need to do anything. Eight years. Some people have been in that church for, well, for 40 years, 50 years. Some had come into the Worldwide Church in the 1950s and 60s, and they were there all through the trials of the 1970s, the attack on the church during that, and then the greatest period of growth in the history of the church from 1979 to 1986. And then they just go along with this great falling away. In, in just a matter of years, it shows you just how quickly you can lose what you've maybe spent years and years and years to build up. We've got to finish. We've got to finish strong. We've got to go all the way with God. And how do you do it? You march forward on your knees. You march forward by your prayers. That's where it all starts. Every day. Matthew 6 Verse 5, it says, And when you pray, when, not if, right? When you pray, you shall not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. It says, Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. There's lots of people that pray that way. You can go to Israel sometime. I don't want to pick on one people over another. But you do. You, you, there's certainly other countries where you see a lot of public displays of prayer. It's not that a group prayer is inappropriate. We certainly have them at, at church services. But we're, generally speaking, we're not out in the open, publicly, praying, you know, putting on a big show. Christ says they have their reward. Their, their reward is that they're seen of men. That's what they want. They want to be seen because they're self-righteous. God says, but you, when you pray, enter into your closet and when you have shut your door, pray to the Father, which is in secret, 
and your father, which sees in secret, shall reward you openly. God, concentrate on your relationship with God. God loves it when we beseech him in private. He will reward us openly. He's just waiting to reward us. He wants to reward us. There's other passages, we'll see them in a moment, where it talks about God knows what you need before you even ask. So why does he expect us to ask? Because he wants a relationship with his children. He's the father of a family. He wants to be close to the little ones. He wants to be close to his family. Verse 7, it says, But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking, it says. But be not you therefore like them, for your Father knows what things you have need of before you ask him. He already knows. He already knows. And if we're not careful, we could get into a spirit of gimme, gimme, gimme. Well, God knows I need this. How come the blessings aren't just rolling out, you know, fast and furious? Where, where are the gifts? If, we're prom if it's more blessed to give than to receive, where, where, where are the gifts that I'm supposed to receive? Well, God doesn't want us to develop a, a selfish attitude. He wants us to give, even in prayer. But just know that if we're pouring our hearts into it, God will give us power and inspiration and love and encouragement and blessings in return. Blessings unmeasured. Verse 31, it says, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall you eat, or what shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. Verse 33, the, the memory verse, it says, But seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Seek God in your prayer. Seek God's righteousness. In other words, put God first. The, fir the first and great commandment, you shall have no other gods before me or in place of me. No one else comes in front of God. No one else comes between you and God. We have to put God first. He has to have that first place in our hearts and minds continually. And when you're getting out of bed and devoting that, that significant time block each morning to praying to God, that's an act of submission. That's, a, that's obedience to the first commandment. That's putting God first in your life. It is a daily task. The prophet Daniel even speaks of it as such. Doing the daily. There's a, an exact type with the ancient sacrifices of old. Sacrifices in the morning and the evening. And they were to be done every day. And then you read examples in Scripture about Daniel or David praying three times in the day. I mean, making those daily offerings, those daily sacrifices, offering up those daily prayers, those, those, the sweet incense from those sacrifices, that, that's a type of the, the prayers entering into God's throne room. You can see that in Revelation 4. God loves it. He loves that sweet incense. He loves talking to his family. He loves communicating with his children. Notice I mentioned, well, we just read over it. God, even before we ask of it, he, he knows what we need. That's brought out over here in James 4. Notice this, James 4 and verse 2. 
It says, you lust and have not, you kill and desire to have, you cannot and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. I mean, we fight, we lust, we, we struggle and strain to get everything that we can. And, and God says, why don't you just ask me? Why, why don't you just look to me as your provider? It says in verse 3, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. So we have to ask, <laughs> you know, we have to ask in a right attitude. It needs to spring from the principle of God's love. I was telling the students the other day, just in studying through First and Second Corinthians, it's amazing to me just how, how it, I mean, I go through this every two years, this study. It's always, it's always wonderful. But to see the love of God, to see what motivated Paul, the Apostle Paul, to see how much he loved the saints and how much he prayed for them and how much he encouraged them and how much he corrected them in love, always. You, you see a lot. The letters themselves are, that's a fascinating and, and deep study for sure. But you also see a lot about the Apostle Paul and the congregation and how Paul interacted with the congregation. Paul was a father figure. He says that in 1 Corinthians 4. He's a father figure, a type, in that sense, a type of God the Father to those brethren. Everywhere we look, God's trying to strengthen that relationship, that family relationship. This is why Satan's tearing it apart. He doesn't want to see a, a, a traditional family of husband and father together with wife and mother and, and an obedient, well-adjusted children. He doesn't want to see that because that's a type of the God family. He wants to split it apart. He wants to break it apart. He wants to crush families. He wants upside-down families. There's plenty of that in the world. He knows what we need, but he expects us to ask with a loving heart. This is from the James booklet, my father's booklet. You can call our operators to order this. It's free. There's no cost, no obligation. 1-866-930-3024. In the booklet on the epistle of James, it says, If you are not getting answers to your prayers, you need to examine your prayers. God says people are asking amiss or asking evilly. It says it's talking about selfish, wrongly focused prayer. I mean, it is, pro it, is, it is possible to pray in a wrong attitude. Well, Jesus just told us this in Matthew 6. We just read it. All those vain repetitions, and it's out in the public, open displays of uh, supposed righteousness, actually self-righteousness. He tells us how to do it. He tells us to do it in the closet, to do it in privacy, and then to make sure that we... we we don't ask for it just to consume it upon our loss. Mr. Armstrong wrote in 1980 that if your prayers have not been answered, it is your fault, not God's. It's your fault, he says. That's pretty blunt. That's pretty straightforward. It's so easy to blame others, especially in this age we're in. People won't accept responsibility for their own actions. Look at some of these politicians and their, their background. And they want to try to destroy one individual because he, he, had, a, he had lunch with, with, with some guy that's, well, okay, he's pretty crazy, but that, that's, that's, that's disqualifying? There are a lot 
of crazy people in this world. And, and truth be told, they're not going to go away the moment Jeroboam returns. The, as I said in the first segment, the sickness is through and through. We really need to be thinking about the return of Jesus Christ and preparing for that blessed event because it's coming soon. It is the solution to the, all the problems of this world. And, and the veil is going to be lifted and everyone's going to understand and know the truth. What a wonderful time that will be. Philippians 4, 6 says to make your request known to God. That same verse, I guess I can read the whole, one, the whole verse. It says, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So let the request, it's not like you, you, you can't request something, but it needs to be with thanksgiving. You're appreciative. You know you've been blessed above all people on earth. I mean, we in God's church are really and truly in the know. The, the, the passage we studied just this morning in uh, the epistles of Paul, 2 Corinthians uh, 4 and 5, God, we're just earthen vessels, just nothing, the dust of the earth. And yet God has opened our minds to understand all things, to understand his, his divine purpose and plan for man, to understand and know why family why marriage? To know why this country is headed in the direction that it is. Luke 11, I mentioned this at the start. Luke 11 and verse 1, here's where they ask Jesus for instruction on how to pray. It says, And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of the disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Teach us how to pray. And, and Jesus did exactly that. He started to teach. Verse 2, it says, And he said to them, When you pray, not if, when you pray, our Father, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That, that mean, hallowed be thy name. That means keep that name holy. That's what we're endeavoring to do when we're praying to God. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. This sets the tone for the entire session. God is holy. God is pure. God is righteous. God is the headship of the family. God is the, well, everything originates in God. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 18. And so we acknowledge that right at the outset of our prayer, and we continue with, the request, here's a request to make known, thy kingdom come. Do you earnestly pray for the coming kingdom of God to be established on this earth? You, if you're, like Jesus said in Luke 21, if we're watching and praying always, or if we're watching in prayer, as 1 Peter 4 says, then we're going to yearn for, long for the kingdom of God Peter said that we should pray that that day would hasten along, hasten the day of Jesus Christ's return. It says here, Thy will be done, this is the end of verse 2, Thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. God's will be done. God, fulfill your will on this earth. Because right now, I mean, it's, this is Satan's world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. 
He's deceived the whole world, Revelation 12, 9. He's the prince of the power of the air. I mean, he even surcharges the air with his attitudes, with his impulses, with his nature. That's Ephesians 2, 2. I think it's John 14 where it says that Satan is the prince of this world. How come people don't understand this? It's in multiple verses. It's all over the Bible. How come people don't understand that Satan the devil is the god of this world and that his reign is about up? He's going to be put away. He's going to be locked away for good. Revelation 20, read it. People don't understand these truths. It just shows how precious we are, how privileged we are to have our minds open to the truth in a world that's just enveloped in thick darkness. Jesus is the light, and he lights up our lives. If we have this kind of a prayer life with our Father, this kind of a relationship with the God family, verse 3, the will of God, by the way, just going back to this dark and evil world, God nevertheless is fulfilling his will on this earth, primarily through the church. So when you talk about this brief prayer outline and all the, the detail that you can put into an outline, if you create a prayer journal, I mean, you could go on and on about God's work today and praying and asking for God to empower the work and his servants, his ministers, his, and, and, and that the work would grow, that the platform the, on which these, these messages stand would just grow and get bigger and, and, and increase in their reach. Herbert Armstrong talked about reaching the largest audience possible with Mystery of the Ages. Lots to pray for there. And then he says in verse 3, Give us this day our daily bread. That tells you right there. Among other things, it tells you to pray daily, doesn't it? Give us today what we need for today. Equip us with strength and power, with understanding and love. Fill us with your fruits, the fruits of your spirit, or bring them forth. Love, joy, goodness, peace, meekness, temperance, faith. It says in verse 4, And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation or, or sore trial, but deliver us, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from our adversary. Deliver us from our enemies. And there's other sections of Scripture where Jesus said to pray even for your enemies. I mentioned Luke 21. Notice this. Luke 21, verse 32, it says, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. We're right here in the last generation before the spectacular return of Jesus Christ to this earth. Verse 34, further on, it says, And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and so that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the earth. See, to everyone in this world that's utterly unprepared for this blessed event, it's going to come suddenly. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come at an unexpected hour. They're going to be caught off guard. They're not going to be prepared. The Laodiceans are not prepared for this. Revelation 3.17 says they're naked spiritually. They haven't even put on their garments, spiritually speaking. 
verse 36, it says, Watch you, therefore, and pray always, that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. In other words, to stand before Christ at his second coming to this earth. Watch you, therefore. Pray always, Jesus said. Pray that you'll be accounted worthy to escape. I was telling the class this morning, you know, God's church, does, it doesn't go out and proselytize. We're not trying to arm twist people into coming into the church. John 6, does apply. God has to open the mind. God has to draw them to Christ. But at the same time, you read through the Apostle Paul's writings, and over and again, he, he really did tell the brethren, look, I, I want to be all things to all men. I want to put the message out there, do everything possible to help save people. Now, it is true that most people in this purpose and plan that God has worked out here below, most people will have their opportunity for salvation after the return of Christ, during the, war, the wonderful world tomorrow, during the great white throne judgment period after that. But that said, the spirit, the mentality of God's people, I mean, we don't want to see anybody go through the great tribulation. God doesn't want to see that. I mean, it has to happen. Look at, where, look at how far removed we are from the truth, from God. But, but the spirit of God's love, God will reach out to and help anyone who's willing, who's willing to draw near to him through prayer, through Bible study, who's submissive enough, teachable enough, humble enough to receive correction from a loving father and to respond to it. That's a wonderful mentality to have. The Apostle Paul certainly had it. Coming back to what Jesus said here, don't get burdened down by the cares of this present life. Watch world events. We try to help you do that in segment one of this show. Watch world events and then pray. Pray always that you may be accounted worthy enough to, worthy enough to, be, to, to escape and, and to be there standing before Christ at his return. You're listening to Stephen Flurry, and this is The Trumpet Daily. If you want to email the show, you can reach us, td at thetrumpet.com. We thank you for joining us on today's show, and we'll see you tomorrow. No, we'll see you next week. 